Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Lori Garrett, one of the most influential experts on global infectious diseases, joins the podcast this week and... As we slide into the one-year anniversary of lockdown, we cook up what's left of my pandemic hoarding, black beans and gin. We also discuss the latest news on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the New York variant of COVID virus, and whether Trump is responsible for pandemicide. So pour yourself a gin and tonic and join us. Thank you, Laurie Garrett. I think uh, I would call you the most influential expert on global pandemics. Uh, and I thank you so much for coming here uh, in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, I don't so know how it's appetizing to discuss <laughs> pandemics whilst trying to eat, but here we go. Well, <laughs> well, this is what I can tell you is I actually find it comforting, right? As a person who bakes a lot and as a person who's, I, I would say other people call me a hypochondriac. I just call myself very aware of the <laughs> medical conditions. Uh, my brother, for my 14th birthday, gave me a copy of the Merck Manual as a present. And that, that's sort of... <laughs> I, and it sits alongside Julia Child? Exactly. And that, that defines, that's me literally, as we would say, in the nutshell. And, uh, or I mean, in a nutshell. So here I am. Um, to me, the pandemic has been all about uh, concern, worry, uh, science, and food. Um, and to before we get into like the deep uh, topic, I want to tell you that I'm making, I think the ultimate, because it's been a year and about a year ago, those of us who are lucky enough to have this abilities stockpiled beans, right? And uh, all the other things I stockpiled are gone, except for the beans and the gin. And it's not because I haven't been drinking gin. It's because I went to Costco beforehand and you know, the giant, maybe article, <laughs> two liter jugs of Kirkland gin. And I must've gone three times, maybe in the month of February and was like, oh, I better get gin, forgetting each time. So how, how do I need much more gin? I think let's start off with that. You know, <laughs> a year ago, you were talking to my brother on his podcast at the moment where it went from SARS to getting its own name of COVID. Did you think we'd be here today? Yes and no. I didn't think we'd have vaccines already. Mm -hmm. That was one thing I really I underestimated, um, the capacity to really rev up successfully um, vaccine manufacture and even some distribution with all of its problems. We do have shots in arms. I've had my shots in my arms. Um, so I was wrong about that. And I also underestimated the contagiousness of this particular agent. I mean, it's proving to be so contagious that it's pushed aside influenza so that we actually have a record low amount of flu in the world today compared to any previous year in the post-World War II period. Um, it's out competed uh, respiratory viruses across the board. So pretty much if you have any coughing and sore throat, odds are 
it is COVID because there's almost nothing else able to compete with it. And it is um, far more contagious than any of them, as it turns out. And I don't think any of us quite realized that was the case early on. I also, um, I think, uh, underestimated the ability of certain international players to push for cooperation. It's a little better than I thought it would be. Still not okay. where it needs to be, but it's better than I thought it would be. Who, who um, impressed you in that case? Who impressed you? Uh, all the players in what's called COVAX, which is the cooperative vaccine effort. Um, so that's UNICEF, WHO, um, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness called CEPI, and uh, GAVI, the Global Vaccines Alliance. Um, and a few key uh, corporate players in the background and of the uh, Welcome Trust from the UK. Together, they have really managed to, to kind of push for the world to come and create a global stockpile so that we can vaccinate people in poor countries. Now, of course, the problem remains that the world hasn't committed the resources to make it anything close to what we need. So only yesterday did the first doses reach Africa and that's only 300,000 doses for Ghana. Wow, that's nothing. Is there, some, is there some sort of timeline for when it will make it, so when more will get to Africa? There's really no way to say right now because there are so many issues involved in why it's taking longer to vaccinate and to get production up to scale than people thought it would. Um, and it's not just the things that lefties will attack like mm -hmm. uh, you know, patent regimes and evil pharmaceutical companies. And it's not the things the right attacks like incompetent WHO or uh, you know, uh, failed state activities in you know, supposed failed states like California. <laughs> um, it's, it really is much more complicated. I, I heard a, a terrifying example just two days ago of um, a contamination event occurred in one particular vaccine production site. And when they got in there and really looked to see what had happened, they could only identify seven human beings on planet earth who knew how to fix it. And four of them were retired. And I heard a story today from um, the CEO of Henry Schein, which is the world's largest PPE slash medical supplies distributor. And he said, the system is so fragile that one fire in one plastic factory is resulting in shortages globally of what are called sharps boxes, which are these special, specially designed plastic boxes that the vaccinator will, after vaccinating you, punch in the, the needle mm -hmm. so that it safely can be disposed of and nobody will get poked by those needles. And these boxes are specially designed to make it super easy to detach the needle from the syringe and also to make it almost impossible to open the box so that the problem we used to have in the third world was kids would play with these boxes and then get needle stick injuries uh, as they 
you know, scrambled around inside and stuck their fingers in. So these specially designed boxes are crucial. You can't do vaccine campaigns without them. And all of a sudden we have a global shortage because of one fire in one factory. So that tells you how fragile our infrastructure is. And so it's not just fragile in like physical product, but it's fragile in capable humans who can help as well. If you're saying that four of the seven people were are retired and had to be right. luck, hopefully, you know, they're with us and their brains are still functioning, had to be pulled out of retirement to help. Um, so that's not a very, um, that's not very hopeful. And yet, so when I see people who are posting pictures of themselves with their inoculation and they're crying, that's not unreasonable. <laughs> people who have been fortunate enough to be vaccinated should be very happy. You, you have access to something that you are um, a distinctly tiny minority of the planet that has been able to receive, even in the United States, fully vaccinated, meaning all doses, et cetera, and the right lag time of 20, 30 days post-vaccination for your whole body to have generated the appropriate immune response. I mean, that's a very small number of humans, actually. Mm -hmm. we've, we've administered 50 million shots, but of that, probably about 9 million have been fully vaccinated and had the right 30-day post-vaccine window to realize their complete potential of protection. So, you know, when you think about that for the United States, that's 9 million out of 340 million Americans. That's pretty puny. That's pretty puny. Absolutely. So, and at the same time, while we're recording this, the FDA is ta uh, talking about approving the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. How's it coming along? This is 315 yeah. on a Friday. Yeah, the, some of the meaty data is just now being presented, but um, so I'm going back and forth. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, it looks very promising. I mean, it's, it's certainly not, and nobody is claiming, including the company, it's not as effective as the Moderna or Pfizer two-dose vaccines. But if you compare it for its first dose to... Moderna with one dose, mm -hmm. it's equal. Oh. And uh, side effects seem to be pretty minimal. Um, and of course, and it worked in South Africa and it worked in Brazil where they have the variant strains in circulation, though they didn't really present data and the FDA was uh, pointedly underscored this. They didn't really present any data that could prove that the vaccine was working against the mutant variant strains. So the company's making a lot of claims, but they didn't really prove it. Um, but overall, I would say it's very likely this vaccine's going to be approved today, uh, or at least the, the committee will recommend approval. We don't actually have an appointed commissioner of the, F of the FDA yet. We have a temporary person in place uh, presumably this temporary person will in fact follow the committee's recommendation and sometime in the next few days formally approve on an emergency use basis this particular vaccine. And that'll make a third vaccine available in America. 
And as I said, its key advantages are that it can be stored at room temperature. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to transport around all these issues that we're having with the Pfizer vaccine that has to be stored at negative almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, this one, you won't have those problems. And uh, it, it only requires one dose. So a lot of the hassle that people are experiencing with trying to find people to come in on time for their second dose evaporates. So for a lot of rural America in particular, this may be a really effective vaccine. It'll allow mobile units to go around in rural areas mm -hmm. and reach, you know, the most distant Inuit village in Alaska, the most remote Wyoming ranch, you know, wherever people may be across America, that that's an advantage. And of course, it'll be a lot easier to use in developing countries because it won't require mm -hmm. uh, these ultra cold, uh, ultra, ultra cold chain provisions. Do you think over time, like I'm, Pfizer, I'm guessing must be working on an, an advancement to their vaccine that will make it more, I'm, I'm guessing, but to make it more accessible to people. So it doesn't require these. I mean, I don't know what's cooking up in the labs at Pfizer, but it would seem to well, me. Well, Pfizer is actually has just this week started a campaign to try and say, oh, it really doesn't have to be that cold. And we want approval from the FDA to not have to store it quite that deeply frozen. But, um, you know, there's clearly a difference between the Pfizer and Moderna in terms of the sort of vulnerability of the vaccine to fall apart if uh, improperly stored. And, um, you know, the Moderna vaccine, curiously, is really a product of a cooperation between what was once a very tiny company and the NIH, which means U.S. taxpayers. And therefore, Moderna should be uh, more open to pressure from U.S. government. Yeah. And uh, that might mean convincing them they need to share their patented technology for how they've packaged their mRNA, these little nano packages uh, with Pfizer so that Pfizer's stability to temperature would be in the same range. Um, but I've not heard anybody making such an insistence on, on uh, the company at this time. What are you cooking? Right now, it's I've um, pureed up. It looks really revolting right now, but I've pureed up uh, black beans, which really does not have a lot of beauty to it, um, with coconut milk and garlic. And um, coconut milk, I think, adds a really nice flavor with black beans. And I've added lemon, um, lime to it, and I'm about to, and a load of olive oil. So by the end of this, I shall have a very shiny coat if I eat this, you know, olive oil, coconut milk. Um, and I'm going to add cumin and uh, I've added curry powder to it because I'm a little weird that way. I kind of what kind of curry powder. Well, this is a blend of. And so it's red and yellow curry. Both? It's mostly yellow and it has um, ginger and uh, fenugreek and turmeric and mostly on the South Asian sort of spectrum of flavors. Nutmeg, white pepper and some adobo seasoning because you know, it is black beans. So I'm trying to, it's a, a multi-ethnic sort of black bean experience. Everything's better with adobo. Isn't it? And I, I made, 
I made uh, cheese scones that are like in honor of my favorite tea room at the University Library at Cambridge, where I, I studied in the tea room. I did not study so much in the library. Let's, I want to be really clear about that. But <laughs> I learned a lot. And I, tr I was desperate for these cheese scones. So I recreated them this week. And I realized I didn't have the Coleman's mustard powder that you need to have for it, that, you know, to make it traditionally English. I was like, you know what I do have? I have really good adobo seasoning made by this guy named um, Eric Rivera, who has a restaurant in Seattle named Addo. And I added ad adobo seasoning to scones. And you know what? Awesome. <laughs> um, you, when I talked to you yesterday, just briefly, we like caught up. I think your first words to me were something to the effect of, and I'll say this as politely as possible, we're effed. And I think, you know, being a sensitive type and reading the news occasionally, you were discussing, referring to the New York variant of COVID. And um, how do you feel about it today, 24 hours later? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of argument going on among scientists in the field right now. And some tell me I'm overreacting and some seem to be in agreement with me. Um, and part of the problem is that the work was done by three different institutions and it's two different publications, Caltech, Columbia University and Rockefeller. And the teams involved are of various stature and, and you know, everybody has their, past histories to bear that ref reflect in how other scientists view their work. Um, and then finally, uh, they failed to notify the New York City Health Department before publishing. So here they have this, you know, potentially blockbuster finding um, that would affect everything the New York City Health Department's trying to do to control COVID. And they didn't bother to let them know that they'd found this new genetic mutant circulating in the city. And that to me really undermines a lot of their sort of moral standing and um, it's pretty outrageous. It reminds me of uh, a few years ago when um, these microbiome researchers were scouring our subways and collecting, swabbing everything and coming back to the lab to identify what microorganisms were in the subways. And they didn't bother to tell the city that they found anthrax. So, um, but I'm still quite anxious about this particular mutant. I want to know more. I want more study done very quickly to determine if it's actually having a, an effect on people because uh, it has two attributes. One is a mutation that is similar to what's in the South African mutant strain, which means it's capable of resisting vaccines to some degree. And the other is a mutation that makes it have a very high affinity for sticking in your nose uh, to particular cells inside your nose, which uh, means that if people aren't wearing their masks right, even if they've been personally vaccinated, they could be carriers that are capable of transmitting it to other people. And that would make all the public health messaging very difficult because you see how anxious everybody is for this to be over and for them to be able to go back to the restaurant or what have you. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I've already seen among even friends and colleagues that as soon as they're vaccinated, they start getting sloppy with their masks. 
they want, I just the other night, I got in an altercation with a person right here in the neighborhood who you know, jumped right in front of me in a social context, breaking my six foot social distancing. And when I said, hey, six feet, she was wearing a loose mask. I said, hey, six feet. She said, oh, I've been vaccinated. I said, well, what's that got to do with me? You know, so you're protected. You don't know if I am. That message has has not been delivered, I don't think. And yeah. one of the things that concerned me was when I, when the first news of the vaccine broke, when it was like, we have it, it's going to be available. I watched newscasters absolutely giddy, as if it were breaking news, as if I could go down to the supermarket and get it. You know, it was they were so excited, and there was no sense of what it meant for people. Like, yes, it's terrific that you're vaccinated, but this is now how you still have to comport yourself as if you had the disease or, you know, or could transmit it. I I think overall, we haven't done a very good job of getting people to understand what the point of a vaccine is. Because when you have, it still is about 40% of Americans saying, I won't get vaccinated or Mm -hmm. I... I'm going to really hold off, you know, you got to really convince me it's safe, et cetera. And so it's a, it's viewed in a very personalistic, very much as if it's just about me protecting me, 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 me. And the, and the same with masks. We see that people who question masks say, well, it doesn't really work to protect me. Who the hell cares? It's about you being a public citizen who protects other citizens, you as a member of your community. And, you know, we've, we've seen the whole message eroding for vaccines since long before COVID mm-hmm. that, you know, parents refusing to vaccinate their kids for measles are uh, based on a potential, you know, one in 1 billion statistical probability of a adverse event for their kid. Um, and that is really saying that the potential of measles and even death due to measles Mm -hmm. in a million other kids doesn't matter to me. They can drop dead. I'm only concerned about my own child. And you take it out of that context and go to the individual, uh, you know, for me to have this altercation with this woman and she's clearly signaling that her interpretation of why one would get in vac- get vaccinated and what vaccination does is entirely about herself, mm-hmm. 100%, and has nothing to do with protecting the community at large. Yeah, I think and we- That's just horrible. We've, we've, we've really blown the message. Yeah, I mean, I think we've taken uh, rugged individualism that is, you know, the, that American attribute to uh, the wrong uh, length. Right it, to the wrong extent at this point. Um, we had a, a certain orange creature in the White House for a while who also wasn't so big on vaccines, which you know didn't do a lot for the message. I'm one. I'm heartened to hear that you reach out to people on the street because um, I, I'm I'm told I'm not supposed to because I might um, might get into some sort of actual physical altercation with people. <laughs> Um, but it, I, I was very interested to know how somebody with as much knowledge as you have that you actually do reach out and say, no, listen, you must do this. I find that very heartening. How much, and I really don't like to talk about it, but how much Trump and his administration really messed up 
and has left us in a really shitty spot for lack of a more scientific term. It, should he be responsible for like the 500,000 people who are dead? Well, I wrote a piece uh, last week that was published in Foreign Policy where I coined the term pandemicide. <laughs> and I, I hold uh, Trump responsible, not for all the incompetence, the stupidity, the blunders, the lies, uh, that's all in the category of, you know, American domestic buffoonery and horror. But from that moment, when he literally turned off the spigot of government, mm. uh, which is election day, through that entire period from November 3rd to January 20th, when he's contesting the election and he's refusing to have uh, transitional governance, uh, any sharing of any expertise or knowledge or information uh, between his people and the incoming Biden team. Uh, and he's really essentially shut down the COVID response as a federal response. Um, during that period, I hold him responsible for the entire surge. So if you look at the surge, it begins uh, in basically late October uh, following a series of political rallies he holds where no one's wearing masks and they're you know, shoulder to shoulder, bumping together, shouting and screaming. Uh, and Stanford University and at least two other universities have done studies that show community-based outbreaks following these Trump rallies. Mm -hmm. So we know that, that they became super spreader events. But from November 3rd, to January 20th, that was the lion's share of this huge surge that we're only now coming out of. And that surge in cases doubled the size of the American epidemic and um, you know, had Im implications all over the world. Um, and so we saw, I, I would hold him responsible for deaths of Americans during that period. Because, you know, earlier on, he could always argue, well, we didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. We didn't know yet about that. But at that point, from November 3rd onwards, all essential knowledge about how this virus works, about how epidemiology works, about how people can protect themselves with masks and so on, that's all by then writ in stone. And so the failure is really truly on his shoulders. And for the rest of it, I think we can all argue and we probably will, history will argue how much of the burden of disease was Donald Trump's personal responsibility. But I give it to him without any hesitation from November 3rd onwards. And it was an unfortunate time to say it in a sort of vaguely ironic way to kind of drop the ball on it because we had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and plenty of people thinking about themselves and getting together with everybody, right? And not a word from the president saying, please don't travel on Thanksgiving. Please don't get on an airplane for Christmas. Please don't have giant family gatherings uh, or gatherings of friends. Please limit your partying and your, uh, mm -hmm. you know, bringing grandma in from Colorado and, uh, Aunt Susie in from Georgia, so you can all in Minnesota have a big, big family bash for three days. And unfortunately, we had a president who was all that time just saying they've stolen the vote, they've stolen the vote. And he had nothing else on his mind. 
And and by the way, I would add, it's not just yeah. he didn't have anything else on his mind, but he formally instructed the whole White House team to behave that way so that whatever was going on over at HHS or CDC or any mm-hmm. of the other alphabet soup um, was almost divorced from the political leadership of the country. And uh, in fact, we now know that Azar was essentially sabotaging Vice President Pence's COVID efforts, and that there was a kind of open warfare going on between CDC and headquarters of HHS. And this was all the kind of stuff that a president would intervene in and say, you, you know, stop that, and you behave yourself. But Mm. we had a president who was not running the country. What was Azar up to? How was he sabotaging? sabotaging pen i think uh once you had clear evidence um in november that the pfizer vaccine looked like a, a at least a at least a triple if not a home run mm-hmm. um <laughs> and then very shortly after that that the moderna looked at least equal then you started to see a real scramble for who was going to go down in history with the legacy of Operation Warp Speed and be credited and lauded and have the palm fronds waved over them, much as the Iraqis supposedly did as U.S. troops marched in in 2003. And uh, instead, of course, um, what we saw was that there wasn't a rollout plan. There wasn't a real clear-cut system in place that the assumption had been that the states would just sort of figure it out and that they would conjure money from already strapped budgets and somehow create giant teams of vaccinators and that this would just miraculously happen. Um, So I think Azar, Pence, Redfield down at CDC were all already figuring out where to point the blame and, and who was going to take credit. And, you know, it was an ugly mess. And by the time the Biden people come in, having the majority of all relevant data hidden from them until they literally march into the White House, by that time, uh, a damage had been done. And uh, the other thing, of course, is that they, they clearly misrepresented what was the scale of the uh, purchasing and the stockpile, how much vaccine there actually was. Um, uh, And again, this required uh, a huge effort by the Biden people. And then we now know there were shortages of syringes, shortages of sharps boxes, shortages of every single kind of supply from the little swabs of alcohol all the way along the line um, for the vaccination effort. And, they're being addressed now. I, it, I often like to think of myself as, you know, youthful in my thinking, but it also means that I take on a very childlike approach, you know, attitude and a child, childlike naivete. And I think to myself, how, how could these people do that? It, doing that sort of thing would be hurting others. And it, it would mean that they weren't doing their job or um, doing the best for their family even in America. And then I realized, you know, I am a historian, I guess. Uh, people uh, have all motives that aren't necessarily 
for the good. Um, what you, are you doing now? I hear you chopping something. Yeah, I was just, um, I've decided that fresh vegetables would be very nice with this dip, but this whole conversation is making me think that I'm going to um, slice up some tortillas and fry them to dip in it because it's Friday. And I also have all that gin, right? So I think it could make a very nice Friday appetizer, me, the cat, maybe. You know, we can a gin hang and out. tonic. Oh, okay, gin and tonic. Okay. You see what I'm saying? I, I mean, as lovely as you are, this is all a bit um, horrifying. Now, when you it. go tonic, is this fever tree or are you okay with Schweppes or what have you? It's, oh, oh, I, that is one of the things I stockpiled actually. It, it the, my delivery service happened to have fever tree in stock. So I figured while you see it in stock, you get it in stock. So I am a fever tree person. And, and are have, you a uh, lime with your gin and tonic lemon this time of year i'm a lime person but come summer i really like a piece of cucumber i think cucumber and lime are beautiful cucumber basil smashed together in a glass a little bit of lime are you a gin person well in normal times yes but uh you know i don't really particularly enjoy drinking without company and yeah. since I live alone uh, and we're in COVID times, uh, there's very little opportunity to enjoy a cocktail. Well, um, as soon as we can get out, you know, I'll get, um, I'll get, I'll bring you one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, just to, um, Laurie Garrett wasn't surprised that any of this happened because you wrote a book called The Coming Plague, and you've had a sense of global health issues, and. I think one of the factors that most average folks don't think about is the, the role that the um, environmental issues play in a lot of the spread of these things, right? Um, we don't think about, well, it's like, oh, there's a problem with, you know, schistosomiasis somewhere off in Africa, but we, we're not going to be affected by these sorts of things here. I think we were sort of, the average person was dumbfounded, but am I right in thinking that the environment also causes issues with disease here, like Lyme disease? How does that work? Yeah, well, uh, you'd be hard pressed actually to name a significant epidemic in human history that wasn't integrated into the environment or arose from environmental issues. And in the coming plague, I've, I put a lot of work on trying to identify what those issues were in past outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And in Betrayal of Trust, I put a lot of work into uh, trying to understand why public health systems and government systems didn't address these issues, didn't anticipate them and so on. And now it's quite interesting that what is happening you know, in tandem with the COVID pandemic is a rising sense of urgency about climate change. There's a, you know, an increasing sense of anxiety about quote, all black swan events. Mm -hmm. And sort of a recognition that um, as homo sapiens, we're arrogant in the extreme. Uh, and certainly one of the things that I've tried to point out many times is that we are doing some very terrible things to the world's wild bat populations. Mm. We are ruining their, their uh, habitats, um, destroying their food supplies, and as a result, paying a price because so many of the diseases that have emerged that have proven very dangerous to human beings have come from bats. 
usually through some intermediary species. And the bat populations are severely stressed. We can't do without them. They are, but they are the most um, genetically diverse mammal on earth. There are more species of bats than there are of any other subset of mammals. And they uh, perform at least two truly crucial functions to the stability of our planet. One is they are the major pollinators, particularly in rainforests. So where the bees don't go, the bats do. And without them flitting about in the upper canopies of the rainforest, uh, we don't have uh, trees and, and fruit trees, fruit and so on. The other thing is that they are the major insect eaters, the insectivore species are, and that means that includes things like eating the insects that carry Zika and malaria and chikungunya and dengue and so on. If you want to be able to sit out in your backyard on a hot summer's night and uh, you know enjoying your cocktail mm. and your, your black bean hummus dip, um, <laughs> you know, you would like for there to be bats out there noshing away at the mosquitoes. Um, but unfortunately, human beings have really slaughtered bats at every opportunity. And we are really stressing their, their ecologies. And one of the things we're seeing is that bats under stress are more likely to abandon their um, migratory patterns through rainforests as the rainforests are destroyed, they come closer to orchards, to human organized plant growth, yeah. so that there is opportunity for exposure. So for example, there's a, a recently emerged bat virus called Lyssa, L-Y-S-S-A, that's so far pretty much only seen in Australia. And it killed, you know, top of the line, super expensive thoroughbred racehorses. And, uh, you know, when they did all the thorough investigation, they figured out it was because these very stressed bats were coming into orchards near these fancy racing horse stables and passing the virus through their urine, which they would, and droppings, which would come down on the hay and so on, where the horses were in their stables. Similarly, we're seeing, uh, things like Nipah virus uh, emerge that are, again, about the interface between humans and bats. And we now know that Ebola, Marburg, and SARS, and COVID, these are all bat viruses, every one of them. But it's not like we just figured this out yesterday. Oh, I, one of the things that makes me um, just love you more is that you helped out with the film Contagion. And I mean, despite the fact that you weren't able to convince Gwyneth Paltrow that infrared saunas are not going to cure long-term COVID, which she's getting a little bit of stick about, that's the vector, right? In the film Contagion. I mean, that was 19, what, early 90s, right? No, more so, recently. No, the movie came out in 2011. Sorry, 2011. Um, what? Oh, I remember. Coming Plague was 1994. So we've known about this for a long time, is there something we can do? Like, you know. Yeah, we could, we have to recognize that as we destroy rainforests, we're creating doom and gloom for ourselves. And as we, 
you know, go into an ecologies in willy nilly ways, we're increasing risk to ourselves. I mean, where did Lyme disease come from? Classic story. Why is there Lyme disease? Because we've eliminated wolf populations. What's one got to do with the other? It's that because deer no longer have a predator other than the occasional human hunter, they, we have vast overpopulation of deer and they are especially close to these exurb areas. You know, you live in an area where there are deer that mm -hmm. wander around and nosh on people's rose bushes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody wants their Bambi, so there's not gonna be any deer control efforts. No one's gonna be allowed to go out there and start slaughtering the deer. But the deer carry um, insects, which carry uh, the Burdorfi uh, bacteria that cause Lyme disease. And so wherever you have an excess of deer population with no control, you have an increased risk of Lyme disease. One goes hand in hand with the other. So this is a problem. So along, it's the environment that we need to, if the environment's stupid, that's what we need to be dealing with. Um, it's a, there's a, a very, important link between the environment, environmental um, and ecology, global health and national security. Because national security is this whole other element that's upended when we have pandemics like this. Well, you know, the, the, somebody I, I, uh, I've, I very much admired and I was, was honored to, to meet um, died recently. He was a scientist who was one of the key people who first discovered the ozone layer was being destroyed and was behind the whole 1987 Montreal Protocol that led to banning uh, fluorocarbon emissions that were ruining the ozone layer. Uh, and he, he had many contributions to make. His name was Paul Crutzen. He was with the Max Planck Institute in Germany he had many contributions to make to science that were just extraordinary. But the one that uh, comes to mind right now in this context is that he was the one that said, you know what, we're not in the Holocene anymore as a geologic okay. era. We're in the Anthropocene because Anthros, humanity, one species now controls the whole planet and is dictating the future of the planet. And that one species is affecting everything from the nature of the oceans, the nature of soil, the nature of, uh, of course, the atmosphere um, and the relationship between all other species on Earth. Um, and so he formally petitioned to the sort of obscure geological organization that decides these things, how to name various eras and so on in the actual coinage of the you know global understanding of geology and world history and so on and they are still mulling it over you know they these are not people that work quickly on such matters and um, uh, unfortunately he did not le live to see them affirm his declaration but we are surely in the anthropocene and it is a time when uh, the downside is humans are affecting everything on earth and destroying. I'm uh, right in front of me at one of my tasks for the day 
along with about 20 others, <laughs> is this manuscript that I'm trying to plow through um, from Joe Handelsman, who under Obama ran our Office of Science and Technology Policy and is a brilliant scientist, microbiologist. And her, she is documenting all the ways in which we're running out of soil. We're literally eliminating soil on planet Earth. Another element of Anthropocene, and it's because of 100,000 different stupid ways that we're coexisting with our Earth itself. But because we're destroying soil, the quality of farming is being undermined. And uh, you could do actual trajectories out to like 2050 and 2060 and say, at this point, this part of the planet won't be able to grow food anymore. And this part of the planet won't be able to grow food anymore because there won't be any soil to grow it in. And, uh, you know, this, this is just one of hundreds of examples. I've been in obscure places all over the world where most people will never go and never be and seeing the effect of human devastation so far away from other homo sapiens. And it's just, it's, it's awful. Any of us that have ever been into snorkeling on coral reefs have watched the reefs of the world get destroyed mm-hmm. in our own lifetime. This hasn't been a millions of year event. This has been a few decades event. Absolutely. I think my father started snorkeling in the 70s and by you know the late, by 2000s, he was already going, I can't go there because the coral reef is dead or I can't go, you know, he wanted to look for a vacation. And that happened in, very quickly. It's, it's a very scary idea. And the idea, I would love to, I, I, I need to know more. I, I won't keep you now because you've been very gracious with your time already, but knowing about, learning about how soil in effect disappears. A lot of the things you're saying are very scary. You know, I read something that, you know, you had been at one of the things that most affected you early on, like you went to a conference and as each virologist stood up and talked about the specific virus they were working on, they all they they talked about how they were beginning to shift, and they all noticed that their viruses were beginning to shift and change, and they left scared. Right, right now we're in a time so that propelled you forward. What makes you? I I kind of get a sense of what makes us all scared right now, but I I gotta have a a, a little glimmer of hope or a well, little bit of possibility. Here's here's the obvious hope. Um, First of all, that your your hummus is uh, hopefully delicious for you. No, it it uh, is going to be. Let, just let me hold on. It's really nice. Well, the the hope to go with that is that if we are in the Anthropocene, I would argue we are. Then uh, it means that the course of the planet's history is being decided by one species. We can decide to destroy it or just not do anything to mm-hmm. of a positive nature and continue to behave in the same brutish, arrogant manner that we as a species have, or because we indeed hold the planet in our hands. If we take proper steps, we can save the planet. We can save it not just for ourselves, but for the species that we haven't yet driven to extinction. Uh, And hopefully uh, even see some species emerge that we hadn't known about before, or that are in fact new species. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be able to bring the dodo back and, and millions of other species that we have in fact driven to full extinction, um, plants, animals, fish, you name it. 
But there's no reason that we have to just throw our hands up and say, oh, it's so complicated and it's so depressing and I just can't get into it. So I guess we're just going to watch the soil disappear and the climate turn devastating and the Atlantic oscillation reverse so that uh, Texas will be permanently frozen and uh, watch uh, the Amazon be completely devastated and so on and so forth. And I just give up. No, you you have it in your hands to make a difference, not not just for yourself, but for future generations, for your children and your grandchildren. And if you give a damn about them, you should. Mm-hmm. You should be, you know, admiring Greta Thunberg, but more importantly, trying to figure out how you can help her and how you can help all the little Greta Thunbergs mm-hmm. all over the world. And really listening to your eight-year-olds when they ask, you know, why is Texas frozen solid? What just happened? And if you don't know how to explain it, go and study it. And then, in fact, unload truth. Uh, that I, you know, I think it's in our hands. We can make a difference. Time, the clock has not yet run out. But boy, oh boy, you can hear it ticking. Yeah, you know, I, um, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but I come from a family of uh, deeply, profoundly anxious people, and um, which all, all, and that's genetic. Um, my kids, who are 18 and 15, are just so much more, even though they're anxious, they know that this is the way to like focus their anxiety, right? The planet, the existential fears that go with um, the environment, uh, all of their, they, they are so much more aware of it and invested in it than we are that I find that hopeful. Um, let me just ask you one more question. Two masks? Yes. Double mask? Right. Yes. And if I've been vaccinated twice or once, I should still wear my mask, shouldn't I? Absolutely. Because the mask is not just about protecting you. It's about protecting others. And we don't know to what degree, even with vaccination, you can carry virus. Just a quick example of why this is a problem. Most people don't know that when Jonas Salk invented the polio vaccine back in the 50s, uh, which of course was revolutionary in America first and then the rest of the world, in that children that before would have been paralyzed and had their lives devastated by the experience, um, suddenly were free of disease. Mm -hmm. But It was an intramuscular injection in the shoulder of uh, a vaccine. And it turns out the virus colonizes in your GI tract. And so immunizing the kids did not eliminate the virus that remained hidden in their GI tract. And all those vaccinated children from the salt vaccine continued to poop and pee virus. And therefore, virus continued to circulate and to infect other children. And it wasn't until Sabin came along and said, well, then I'm inventing an oral vaccine. And this will sterilize virus out of the GI tract. And those kids will be not just immune protected for themselves, selfishly as one individual, but rather we're going to immunize kids in a way that protects every other kid, every other person, and protects the environment from this virus. 
And it's that difference that we need to think about when we look now at COVID. Are we vaccinating in a way that protects you as an individual against disease, but allows the virus to continue to be carried by you? Or are we vaccinating in a way that truly could lead to elimination of human to human transmission of this virus? And unfortunately, because of our rush to come up with a vaccine, we don't have an answer to that question because all the drug companies have been required to use uh, uh, time to illness and severity of illness as the markers of efficacy. So when you hear the phrase, this vaccine is 95% effective, in the context of COVID, what they're saying is it's 95% effective at protecting the individual from getting severely ill, hospitalized or dead. But that says nothing about whether the individual is completely free of virus and will no longer transmit to others. So my answer on the masks is, if you're a decent human being, you have any kind of moral framework, you actually care about other human beings, you better wear your masks. And on that note, I shall only drop my mask to enjoy a gin and tonic and raise one in your honor, in your direction. Thank you so much for being with me. I shall put some in the freezer for you or make it for when I can see you sometime. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day and I hope the FDA does the right thing. TGIF. TGI, is that TGIFDA? <laughs> okay, I'll stop. Thank you very much. <laughs> see ya. I hope you learned a lot from The Secret Life of Cookies today. A big double mask thank you to Lori Garrett for her insights into COVID, global health, and environmental issues, and how to make a gin and tonic time safer by helping bats live. You can find my recipes on my website, marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf, and if you'll be so kind, please leave a nice review in the Apple Store. Stay safe, double mask, and talk to you again next week.